This episode is brought to you in part by Richmond Graduate University. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly. Richmond Graduate University can equip you to become a licensed professional counselor, integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. Welcome to the Crafting Character Podcast. Steve Carter here and in association with my good friends at Preaching Today and Food for the Hungry, I bring you a podcast that hopefully helps you get better at the craft of teaching and preaching and communicating while always hoping that your character will lead the way. Well, today I'm excited because I get to interview pastor and author Jason Miller. Jason Miller uh, is a is a is a friend. He is someone I have known um, for over a decade. Um, I, I actually met him when he was a worship leader. He was coming up out of uh, Granger, Indiana. Um, he now leads an incredible church. It's called South Bend City Church. He is such a creative, thoughtful, deep presence. Um, he's someone that I. I just find myself a bit captured by the way at which he uh, tells stories. Uh, he's such a profound storyteller. His his like way at which he unpacks the text. It, it, he's just someone I have grown to deeply, deeply respect and appreciate. And I'm excited because he is releasing a new book, and it's called "When the World Breaks: The Surprising Hope and Subversive Promises in the Teachings of Jesus." And um, it's it's an incredible book. It is an incredible book. And he did um, a message, which is really chapter three of the book. And as he walks through the Beatitudes and he, he, he talks about blessed are those who mourn. And we haven't done this for a while, but I want to go back and give you a sense of his sound. And then um, you're just going to get to hear uh, one of one of my favorites, uh, just dive in, share with such thoughtfulness, elegance, creativity that I think is really going to impact the way that you preach and teach and embody the way of Jesus. Here's my friend, Jason Miller. If you went through the Psalms and you read every Psalm of Lament and you looked for patterns, you would find one major pattern in the Psalms of Lament. It's simply this. Psalms of Lament typically begin by naming the loss either actually or metaphorically. So the first thing they do is they say, God, this awful thing has happened. We are struggling, we're suffering, we've lost this loved one or this dream or this violence has happened in the world against us. So they, they name the thing that they're lamenting and then they turn to praise. Praise. One of these famous Psalms of Lament begins, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And that same psalm ends with the psalmist saying, I will declare your name to my people. In the assembly, I will praise you. From you comes the theme of my praise. Now, confession, when I was actually studying these psalms in grad school and I actually saw that pattern, I was so annoyed. Because when I saw psalms that begin with loss and lament, and just like seven verses later, they turn to praise God, I'm like, I've been around that. I don't like it. It started to feel like that kind of like sentimental greeting card faux spirituality that sounds really good until you try to live inside it and it doesn't work, right? 
You know, you know what I mean? Like the, just the kind of like, well, okay, you named the hard thing. Now let's praise God anyway. It's like that doesn't work all the time. And frankly, when we impose that on one another, we can create a lot of unhealth. Like that can turn into spiritual bypassing, right? That can just, that can just turn into the kind of like, yeah, we kind of gave lip service to the lost and we just moved on. So I didn't like that when I first read it, but then I remembered something else that I've learned about spiritual texts. And this is really important for all of y'all. If you're ever reading the Bible, this is like a 101 principle for reading sacred texts, and it's this. They often express in microcosm experiences and processes and ideas that are much larger and take much longer than is represented on the page. Just because it takes you five minutes to read from lament to praise in the psalm doesn't mean the psalm is saying that your heart should be able to move from lament to praise in five minutes. But it might be suggesting that there's an intrinsic connection between our willingness to lament, to mourn, to, to actually do the work of naming these losses, our, our willingness to lament, there might be a connection between our willingness to lament and our capacity for wonder or praise. Well, Jason Miller, thank you for joining us on the Crafting Character Podcast. Uh, we just got to hear a little bit of your sound and your teach. Give us a little background on that message and what you were hoping to accomplish. Yeah, uh, I, I kind of mentioned at the beginning, of the, if you listen to the whole thing, we were in the middle of a money series, actually. But we'd had two really hard deaths in our church. Um, actually, one was a, an eating disorder death. Um, and then the other was, um, I mean, just, just another like really hard loss. And not only did I know that a lot of our community was really grappling with that, but I don't know if you feel this, Steve, I, to me, like preaching should not be a place where you work out your own junk. Like that's not what the pulpit's for. However, conversely, I feel like there should be only so much gap between where you really are and what you're saying on a Sunday. And it was just one of those weeks where if I got up there and did the money sermon I had planned, the gap was going to be too far and it didn't feel like integrity. And so instead, um, we, you know, we did a teach on, on grieving. And uh, th that was a very contextual moment for our church based on what we were facing. Uh, but in the back of my mind was also the awareness that, and our team has been talking about this, and a lot of smart people are talking about this. I think that there's just grief everywhere in our world right now. The last three years have given us like so much loss. And um, I, I think we've got to keep finding ways to walk with people through that. So that was the kind of larger um, moment behind that sermon alongside the contextual stuff in our community. Yeah, I, I, love, I love how you just describe that because, and I'm curious, how do you discern? Because I, I think in one sense, you're right. Grief is, man, how to, how to become aware and speak about it. But then I think as a, as a communicator, as a preacher, pastor, like how you are discerning that, um, not working out my stuff, yeah. but also like, man, I, I can't be tone deaf to where my community actually is. I, are there, are there questions you ask yourself? How, how do you get attuned yeah. to, man, I, I'm, this is becoming too like biographical of Jason Miller and not yeah. enough for the congregation or for the context of the text. That's, I love that. Cause early in my preaching, I totally, I, it was a mess, man. And, and there was way too much of me kind of bringing open wounds uh, to the pulpit. And I don't think it really served the community as well. So I think part of it is if, if we're doing the work to not be reactive to our own emotional worlds, you want to be like in, in tune with your emotional world, but you don't want to be reactive to it, I think, right? And I think we, as, as leaders and preachers, 
um, so th there's long work in the background there, right? Whether it's um, whatever practices and whatever, help, you know, helpers are helping you do that. The other, to me, like even on that one, you know, I mean, that was a late, late audible. Uh, it was like a Saturday audible. Um, but I'm still checking in with at least a couple members of our team. Uh, I don't, I can't think of a moment. I, I'm trying to like run through my memory. I, I don't know if I could think of a moment when I would have found it appropriate to just like purely unilaterally with no check-in with anybody who I trust to say like, am I reading this right? And we, and we have a great team. And so I get to trust them with that. Yeah. I think it's really wise. I mean, again, just like having, it's, it's, it's a way to, to, to empower your team, but to, to ask them that, that question, I think it's fantastic. You know, Jason, I actually met you as a, as a worship pastor first, yeah. and you've always been this, this really deep and thoughtful, creative voice. I, you know, I remember you coming up to Grand Rapids, Michigan, uh, helping out lead worship. You were, um, just really, really well respected by some people I think the world of. And, and then you, you kind of made this shift from kind of leading worship at Granger community to, to teaching on the regular. And I remember like seeing some of the stuff that you would do, even just with the slides and they were so creative and, and then now kind of planting and leading South Bend city church. And again, just that thoughtfulness that, that real artist, pastor, creative. Um, and then I felt it really, really even in, in, in your writing, um, in your, in your book. And, um, I, I'm curious, talk about that progression from worship leader to kind of pastor, writer, um, teacher. Yeah. Yeah. Like growing up, music was like the one thing I succeeded at. Um, I loved it. Uh, I felt at home in it. I also felt really close to God in the work of music. Um, and like all my heroes, all my idols, everyone who moved me, uh, a lot of them, you know, were great uh, musical artists. So I kind of like stumbled into uh, work in college doing worship leading. Didn't really have a vision for my future, but I liked playing music. My faith mattered to me and churches are like the best gigs in town if, if you're a musician. So it's kind of, there wasn't like noble minded. It was like, yeah, it was a good gig, you know? Um, but, I, but I was, I was trying to like work out all these kind of inner convictions and like a sense of calling. And I would try to write songs and Steve, they were awful. I mean, they were so bad. And I worked really hard at it. And I, like after years of like trying to understand songs, I was, I was, I was like, I, I feel like there's this stuff inside that's supposed to be expressed. And, and music was the vehicle that made sense to me. So I was trying to work that out. Uh, same time, uh, Granger, where I was working, they, one thing they did really amazingly there, and this is a credit to a lot of people at Granger was, you know, they would give young leaders a lot of chances to try things and take risks. And, and they were the ones who were like, hey, why don't you try preaching? I should say part of that was I wasn't a great singer. And maybe that was kind of like an out. Like people would say stuff like, hey, Jay, you know, the, the music's okay. Um, but we really like the stuff you say between the songs. <laughs> which is which is a real, uh, real complicated compliment, you know. <laughs> um, but I started preaching a little bit. And, and part of me was like, oh, no, this is interesting. Like I felt something there. But music had been a source of security and identity for me in a really deep way. So it wasn't easy for me to make that move. And at the same time, I, like, I wanted to be faithful to a sense of calling, and I still thought music was it. But then one day I was actually uh, filling in for worship on a Sunday at Mars Hill Church, uh, where you had been too. And uh, Rob Bell was up there preaching. So I, I did the worship set, and then I'm in the front row sitting next to our friend Troy. And um, Rob, um, Rob's up there. Of course, Rob's a very talented communicator, and I was really enamored with Rob. And 
And as I'm like, on the one hand, living in this internal tug of war between these divergent senses of calling, on, on the other hand, I'm just wrapped up in Rob doing what Rob does. Troy didn't know about this tug of war inside, but he just leaned over and he said, you know, I think one reason Rob is such a good communicator is he was a musician first. And it was like the roof of the shed got lifted off and the angels sang. And like, it, was the, it was the moment of resolution and, and, and reconciliation for me about all these inner energies. So I came home and I, like, I was like, I'm going to get after it. Like everything I know about music, I'm going to try to channel it into preaching. Um, dynamics, um, energies, the same way that, um, you know, a chorus feels different than a verse. Like energetically and tonally, like I want my sermons to have those different kind of modalities. Um, and also my early sermons were just a mess in terms of structure. Uh, I had all these sort of disconnected ideas I was trying to ram in. And then music saved me there because I, 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 like, I think the pop song is one of the greatest formats of art in the history of the world. And so for a while, just to force myself into form, uh, every sermon I wrote, I wrote as a pop song. So I had an intro, verse one chorus, verse two chorus, bridge chorus. And the chorus became, like, one thing I didn't have in my early sermons, I didn't have a center of gravity, mm. right? Uh, so then the chorus became my center of gravity, became my, the one thing I'm trying to drive home. The verses were a place for some exegesis, some storytelling. And then the bridge becomes this little moment toward the end where you can decenter the center of gravity, for, kind of go outside for a moment, maybe you know, address all of the questions in the room or provide some application, but, but you always come home to the chorus, right? And so, um, so that, like that really, that's the first time I found my own voice, I think, in preaching. Uh, and it was me feeling like, no, this is my song. I just didn't realize it was going to show up without, you know, a piano in front of me. <laughs> that's amazing. I, I, I love that. I'm curious because like, that's a great little structure right there, you know, with the chorus one, chorus, or, you know, or yeah. verse one, verse two, chorus bridge, chorus like for you how long did you run that playbook and as you made that shift did you end up going back to school to learn or was this like fully just on you learning how to preach from various friends who were in the ministry yeah um i ran that that format for a while these days every once in a while i come back to it i, yeah. I, I would probably be a better preacher today if i came back to that more often actually um and then as far as like, you know, kind of a company in the turn with some equipping, um, I, I did go back to school, but um, I ended up doing a program that didn't really offer anything homiletically, um, yeah. but it was great for like deepening my awareness of scripture. So I, I did feel a hunger for more education once I started preaching. Um, but I'd say the, the preaching craft really just came from just sitting under great preachers. The church I was at, Granger, um, had a number of Really, really great communicators, Mark Beeson, Bob Laurent, uh, Rob Wegner. These are guys who world-class, and I just got to swim in their waters for years. And then finding, you know, obviously it's a golden age of great preaching online with podcasts and videos and just kind of soaking that stuff up. That's awesome. Well, um, I want to transition to talk through the Beatitudes. Yeah. And, um, you know, you you have this um, – amazing, amazing book that, that, that drops in early August. And I, I mean, I'm so excited about this book. Again, I think your, your writing, um, is just, is so rich. It's so deep. And, um, the, the book is titled when the world breaks. And really what I think is amazing is you really look at the transformative paradoxes of the Beatitudes. And I'm just, I'm just curious, like, hmm. can you give us a little like backstory why this book? Why now? Because I actually think what I really love is I love great writing. 
I love um, books that move me, but I also love books that I go, oh, that's a sermon series. And this, <laughs> this has like all of it. It, it. The writing, it's the, it's just the depth, the richness, but it's also like, oh, this could be really, really great for the congregation that I get the, the chance to shepherd and pastor. Talk about just the backstory of why this book, why now, why the Beatitudes? Yeah. I mean, uh, you and I shared the first experience of why this book, which is that 2010 trip that you and I took to Israel-Palestine. Um, so, you know, we, we do this experience with a few friends uh, to learn about all the complicated dynamics of what's going on there. Um, and I know for me, and I think for all of us, it was a real crucible, right? I mean, granted, we weren't the ones who were suffering, but we were we were sitting next to some really hard stories. Yeah. And it had this kind of concussive effect of one after another. And I know for me, I mean, I, I reached a real breaking point in that trip where I kind of unintentionally started to fixate on this really dark mantra, uh, which is just, there's no way this gets better. That, be, that became this really kind of despairing feeling. Um, and it's right in the middle of the part of the trip that was hardest for me that our group walked into Elias Shakur's church there. And this is a, a really respected Palestinian priest and a real elder of the people there. And his church includes engravings of the Beatitudes. And I think for me, I just, they were part of the Bible. It had never made a lot of sense to me. They didn't seem very relevant to me. Um, but I, I was kind of open enough, I guess, or I, I was in a state of mind where I was ready to hear them differently. And I remember going home to my, or back to my, my hotel room that night and opening up my little Bible that I've been using for years for preaching and personal life. And um, Matthew, 5, like I have notes everywhere in that Bible. Matthew 5 was pristine, man. These were virgin, untouched pages, um, which kind of convicts me, but maybe, maybe it just meant that that was the time for them to become a part of my, my faith, you know? Um, as I sat with them, I, I began to feel, and it's not like, I mean, for 2,000 years, people have been having these epiphanies with the Beatitudes. This is just my version of it, but I, I, I began to recognize that like when he describes the poverty within you, the, the poor in spirit, when he describes mourning, and when he describes like aching and thirst or hungering and thirsting for righteousness, like, you know, that, that, that like gnawing, screaming feeling inside that says things should not be this way. Uh, I began to connect it to other experiences and all of a sudden the big like geopolitical, militarized mess of what happens in an occupation the underlying human experience of it, I realized it didn't feel that far from some of my own experiences, whether uh, like on the one hand, I had a real, um, really acute collapse of mental health in college. And on the other hand, um, walking with somebody very, very close to me through really scary seasons of addiction and self-destruction, um, the terrain start, you start to recognize the familiarity of that terrain. And I, like it, I could hear Jesus describing that terrain. Um, so that's been like working on me for years. Um, and I actually had this big, one of, you know, one of those big sticky notes that's the size of a poster on your wall. Yeah. And it's, I wrote When the World Breaks, like, I don't know, 11 years ago. And it's, it's been sitting on that wall until I moved out of that house a few years ago. And um, kind of noodling on it and wanting to write about it. And then in the early days of the pandemic, there was kind of this, it's like, okay, well, like, what else are you waiting for? <laughs> for life to invite you to, to finish this work, you know? And so that's kind of how we ended up with the book coming out right now. It's, I mean, again, it's so rich and it is, it, that trip was wild that we went on, you know, 13 years ago, just like life altering, yeah. changed everything. You know, it was like the first time I realized, um, you know, there, there are these like 
verses, and then there's these embodied people who yeah. are incarnating the verses, and yeah. there are these holy sites, and then there are these people who are like embodying yeah, yeah. With this 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 whole story, you know, and just you know, you just you, you, you go in, you see that on the walls, or you know, you you go to a house and and you see like this massive, massive boulder and on it says we refuse to be enemies. Yeah. And you realize like, oh my goodness, that love love thy neighbor uh is not just a an idea, you yeah. know, um and it's swirling, you know, in in Aramaic there's the the word fishmosakbol, which means we have no future. In a, mm-hmm. in a world where that's that's where so many people were feeling yeah. we have no future. And yet you you get around Elias, you get around Mitri, you get around these amazing people, these these amazing just women and men of God, and their faith is just I mean, yeah, it's like the embodied beatitudes, you know. Right. And it's 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 so powerful. What what for what for you in, in the Beatitudes um was the one that you most resonated with? Mm. And what one was like the hardest for mm. you to like you like you you knew it contextually what it was trying to say, but yeah, you, it, it was harder for you to actually access the depths within. Yeah, um, quickest most resonant connection for me um, was probably "Blessed are those who mourn," which is the clip that you pulled into the beginning here. Um, yep. Although interestingly, like I actually, that's actually because it resonated so deep. It's one of the two chapters I I wrote for the proposal. You know, you kind of want to lead out strong when you shape the book. And then, though, what happened, so, so I had written that chapter a few years ago, but then the story I'm kind of working out in the sermon um, that you're pointing to in the episode here, um, my friend Alex died by suicide a few years ago. And um, I remember I went down to Nashville to, to speak at his funeral. And then the next day, there, there's this uh, coffee shop on 8th Street down in Nashville. And he and I used to always hang out there. And I went to that coffee shop to kind of just kind of sit and be, you know, present. And, um, I had my laptop with me and I just remember like sitting there realizing like everything I had written in that chapter about blessed are those who mourn, it felt hollow now. So I remember like opening up my laptop and like scrolling down, like deleting the whole chapter. So it felt resonant once, but then it, it kind of came back to me with a new urgency, um, in the wake of like a really hard loss, like suicide. So, uh, blessed are those who mourn has a lot of personal, um, power for me and it's still working on me. Um, I, I re-listened to the sermon that, that you pointed to here just to kind of remind myself and I, c- I can even hear my own kind of raw, you know, it's been four years since Alex died, but there's still something there. Um, w- one that was maybe the hardest for me uh, is blessed are the meek. There, there are a number of different interpretive moves that people make on meek. And I, I try to say all over in the book, I'm not pretending to have the authoritative read, right? I'm kind of running with one thread of interpretation, but the thread that I, that makes a lot of sense to me with meek that I've seen in others um, is when systems or circumstances bridle your power. So it's not that you don't, it's not that you're not a powerful person. It's not that you don't have strength. It's just that something going on around you renders that strength irrelevant. And I think what was hard for me about that one is I'm just growing in my own education and awareness of the fact that other people experience that in different and more profound ways than I do. Yeah. I'm speaking specifically, right? Look at my friend, Angela, who's a black woman, who's a professor and administrator at Notre Dame. And She's a black woman in that world. And so she has just a different experience in some ways than I do. And so I think while I, 
I really want to learn from and even amplify those kinds of stories and experiences. I'm also just aware that as I'm writing about that, I, I, I'm kind of borrowing from other people's stories when I do that. And that makes the writing a little, little different. So, okay. So let's talk about this because again, th- this, this book is unbelievable. Like you, you graciously let me read like a, an early advanced copy. And you mean you graciously I, offered to endorse it? <laughs> well, I mean, I just, I, I'm such a Thank big you. fan of you and your writing and your teaching. I, I'm, I'm curious, like, let's, let's take this like into a sermon just for yeah. a second. Yeah. So that definition that you just did for meek, all mm-hmm. right. Talk about how you get there. Mm-hmm. And, and, and again, because I think great communicators um, know how to take an idea and they understand the different medium where it could be a yeah. page, where yeah. it could be a message, where it could be a tweet, where it could be like a long form Instagram post, where it could be a podcast, you know, this, this idea around meek, it makes a great teach, makes a great chapter. How then when you're teaching to a very academic community in South Bend, um, very working class, like just diverse, how do you, how do you take that idea and then go, okay, I mean, do you have like pictures of the Angelas on your, on your wall? Like how, how do you make that accessible, but also have the right recognize recognition of who you are in that yeah. definition. Talk, oh, talk about good. that. Cause you're so thoughtful. It's one of my favorite things about you. Uh, that's, let me think out loud with you about that. Um, for me, for me, and maybe this is kind of upstream of what you're asking about, but it, re- it really is going to start with like doing a really big walk around the text. Right. And so yeah. um, like on that beatitude in particular, there's some kind of in- divert people kind of read it different. And, and I had a direction I wanted to go with it. And it, you got to be really careful about that, right? Like if you want to honor the text, like you got to be careful about where you want it to go versus where it's really going. So I, I had to work on that one longer. Um, but I found enough that took me in that direction from other good sources of what I just said, right? That, that one of the ways this can be read is, is um, when systems or circumstances bridle your power. Um, then to me... Um, I'm just asking myself, where have I seen this, right? Just like it's a long think and a prayer and a, and a staring out the window. Um, and what I'm trying to do pastorally now more, more than I used to is I want, I want more often for the stories of my own people to show up in my sermons, right? Like I, I, can, I can find cool examples from history and those can be illuminating and I can tell stories of my friends from other places and those are personal but I, I'm trying to do a better job of like, what, how, do, how well do I know my own church family and where have I seen these stories, these hurts and these virtues already lifted up in the lives of these people? And how can I kind of lift them up from the pulpit and reflect them back to the same people? There's like, I think a lot of really obvious reasons that's good and important. So then I'm kind of rifling through actual people in my community. I'm kind of picturing myself on a Sunday and I'm looking around the room and who are the faces and the stories that stand out. And that's helping me um, develop preaching that's more contextual. Yeah. And, um, there, and it's also helping remind the members of my own church that you're not spectators in these sermons, right? You're the actor, you're the agent um, alongside Jesus and the rest of this community and what we're talking about. Do you, do, you, uh, do you give people a heads up on that? Or do yeah. you not use them by name and use them by like proxy me, where the person knows like, oh, Jason's talking about me, but didn't say me. Like, how, how do you do that? 
Yeah, I'm getting. Uh, I don't have that totally worked out yet. So I, it kind of depends on the circumstance. Um, if there, if you know, obviously, there's anything divulging or, or you know, personal. Of course, I'm going to reach out then. Um, yeah. Also, if I know that there's a particular maybe level of, um, it could be that the story I'm going to share from the pulpit is from the life of somebody in our church, and people already know that's it's public domain, if you will. But if the story has a, kind of an emotional tenderness to it, that's another reason I think to. Yeah. Like, I don't want you sitting in church on Sunday and hearing this elevated and you're not expecting it. Yeah. Um, I think, um, yeah, you know, I think relationship art, like there's people I know where I, I think I kind of can calibrate their own need for when they need to hear that from me ahead of time. And when, when over time I've learned that they're really great with it before, without, without me checking in. So I think there's a lot of personalization there too. Yeah, no, that makes, I, I think that makes no sense. And I, I love that intentionality because again, like, um, I think we can pull sermon illustrations from so many places. Um, but when you, when you know your people yeah, um, right. and you, you see how they were poor in spirit or, you know, when they chose to be meek and somehow they experienced or when they hunger and thirst for the right stuff, you know, like it just, mm-hmm. there's something powerful about that. Um, I, I'm curious for you, like too, was there anything that surprised you? In the Beatitudes, just the, in a um, sense that just like, man, it, again, this is, this is something like, I feel like for, for many of us, um, we've known, um, we've always not known what to do with, mm-hmm. you know, um, is it the, is it the forward to the Sermon on the Mount? Like what, like what, yeah, what is yeah. this kind of like, it's just like, oh yeah, get me to the Sermon on the Mount. But like, then you just start to read it and then you start to see it and, you know, again, just checking out like and reading and sitting with for a, a number of weeks. Uh, and I think I, like, I called you multiple times. I was like, dude, this is really, really good. Like when the world breaks, this is really, really good. And it was illuminating some stuff for me that I was like, man, I've never seen it that way. And that just makes so much sense. And this is going to mm-hmm. be so helpful for people. Mm-hmm. But it was like, like a surprising revelation that was uh-huh so contextually true and beautiful and rich. What about for you? Is there, was there yeah. going through it, something that just, man, it just, it shook you. Yeah. There's a couple. Um, one is, uh, Jesus isn't like, he's not messing around. Like what I mean by that is, um, I think it's like, he knows that the, the entire life that he describes in the rest of the Beatitudes that like you can't get there performatively. You you can only get there by submitting to the bizarre kind of transformative process that God is kind of ready for with us. But like, um, I forget, I, I want to say it's Cynthia Bourgeau, who's an Episcopal uh, priest who says something like the Beatitudes are pitched at a higher level of consciousness. Mm-hmm. And not, not that you've got to like show up at them with this really sophisticated, whatever. I, I think Jesus though is speaking, of course, from this, you know, enlightened place. And so like the, the first, he's like, I'm about to take you on a journey. And the first thing I'm going to tell you is that you need to abide the emptiness inside of you, Ooh. which is just kind of a, yeah. uh, an, an intense way to begin. But I think it's because he knows it's like, until you allow yourself to meet God and all the things that you are running from, until you let that happen, you, you're still living in with this reactive energy against all the pain in this world. And that reactive energy leads us to these you know, really destructive and sometimes even violent postures in the world. And like the enemy loving, um, forgiving, trusting posture that he's going to describe in the rest of this 
it's like he's he's first got to dismantle these engines of reaction and returning violence for violence. And it's like until he dismantles that engine, nothing else is going to matter. And so anyway, that stands out to me more and more. The other one, and I fear this is going to sound so pious that it's going to be annoying, but I really mean it. Um, at some point, right? Oh, the, the last chapter or the second to last chapter, uh, I was working through the way that Jesus embodies these beatitudes. And you can just see them at work. You, you can see that he trusts his own message that he's like smoking what he's selling, right? Yeah. And um, at this point in my own life with Jesus, it shouldn't have been surprising to me, but something about working on that caught me fresh with the kind of hyper-integrity that he has. Mm. And it's not, I think, that he's just like, you know, that he wills himself to be so impressive. I just think he he knows through and through in his bones and his body and his soul, he, he knows that that these bizarre blessings are trustworthy. And so he lives in, in accord with them, you know? So I, I, don't, I don't see him running from the poverty within him. I don't see him, you know, I think he's, he's more quick to weep than I am. You know, I, I think he's, he's able to live in intimate encounter with these really hard experiences. And that's what leads to the power of his life, which is precisely why he's trying to help us live an intimate ex experience with all this because he wants us to live in, in that same power, you know? But just to see that integrity, um, it had a kind of a fresh, uh, awareness for me in writing that chapter. And it really, um, I don't know, brought a lot of hope and it really yeah. moved me. Yeah. Well, you know, it's, it, it, it does. And I think that's the, the, the preaching of paradox and, and because it just feels backwards to yeah the way I was raised. Yeah. And like empty yourself out. Like I like get attuned to that. Like, yeah mourn yeah. like yeah. Yeah. in a world of just constant go and achievement and performance this you know um the founder of the salvation army's great quote is um the greatness of a person's power is their measure of surrender you know oh, it's just wow. like you sit Wait, there can you say that again the greatness of a person he says man but he, he means it both men and women yeah. the greatness of a man's power is their measure of surrender Wow. And, and just like you, you sit there and you just go, gosh, like at the heart of this surrender, a whole new, you know, level of consciousness, portal, reality, world, kingdom yeah. breaks through. And you just beautifully like talk through it. But it, it's, it's just even the phrase transformative paradox just sounds, wait, wait, what? Like it just <laughs> like it. Yeah. And that's, that's, I feel like the beauty at which you so elegantly and thoughtfully just detail, but also like it, you, you make it possible, you make it accessible. Mm -hmm. And and it's through like the stories, the stories of your life. And, but it's also through the context, it's through the writing, but there you, you get there and you go like, gosh, this, this, is, this would be a, a much more beautiful and compelling yeah. world in the midst of all of the beauty and sadness and yeah. the reality yeah. that's, that's right before us, you know? Um, talk about your hope for this book. Wait, wait, you mentioned like it gave you a sense of hope for the, the yeah. uh, but like what's your actual hope for the book? Yeah. I mean, I hope people um, will let Jesus kind of usher them into these kind of hard encounters, not because we like wallow in them, not because like, I don't believe in a God that like, you know, 
like needs that for God's sake, right? I don't, I don't think God needs us to be broken down. And I, I think God just knows that we, we live with all these defenses, right? We live with all of these guarded places within and that all that guardedness is, um, even if it comes from very understandable experiences, it's the thing keeping us from loving God and loving each other. And so, um, I mean, I think there's nothing more despairing than thinking you can't heal. And there's nothing more hopeful than finding out you can. And I think Jesus is going to help you heal if you just let him kind of be like, hey, you know that, like, I can, it's almost like he's like, I can hear him like, say, hey, hey, buddy, I, I know there's a place inside of you that is really scary. And you, you may not even know it's there because maybe you've built so many layers between you and it that you're, you're walking around with it, unaware of it. But I, I just, I want to, I want to walk with you into that. Yeah. And, and I, what I'm here to tell you is that when you do that, on the other side of that emptiness, you're going to find a fullness. And on the other side of that loss, you're going to find glory. And like, but you got, you got to walk with me through it, you know? And so the hope that people will feel, I think, um, when you kind of let Jesus and these very strange blessings, um, walk with you into that. Uh, so hope and healing. I also think, um, you know, in every moment, Jesus is due for a fresh hearing. And so um, this maybe is my little contribution to that project that a lot of us are working on. And uh, I did not, like the book's not super evangelistic. I didn't like try to write it to like win people over in that sense. But I do think um, my own journey has been that I, I had, I had a Jesus who didn't have a lot to say to me about some of the hardest things I faced because the Jesus I did have was um, not a bad Jesus, but not, not the one I know today. And, um, you know, he had a lot to say to me about my personal sin problem, but he didn't have a lot to say to me about brokenness and systemic issues and mental illness and all that. And the one I have today, the one I've met in these blessings is this kind of fuller, wiser, more deeply credible Jesus. And so if other people encounter that Jesus too, I'll be like really happy about that. Mm. Well, there's a, there's a, a richness, you know, that I, I often wonder if how intentional God was, was giving his son two names, you know? And I think often in our evangelical circles, like um, we were taught growing up, like just one name that he's mighty to save and yeah. didn't really know Emmanuel that he was with us. Oh, and, wow in the difficulty, you know, and I think what's so beautiful about the way that you write is I experience Emmanuel and it like ushers me into, um, this one who is mighty to heal and save oh, and right. rescue. Um, and, and, you know, forgive me if this is not an appropriate question. Um, you know, you, 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 you talked about Alex and you talked about like the day after his funeral, and being in that coffee shop that you guys had chopped and had so many questions and life and moments together. Um, and you just said just a second ago with your hope of this book, you know, that people are going through some stuff and, you know, that what you experienced. And um, I'm curious, like, um, for you, how, how, did, how did writing this actually help in your healing journey? Because this, this is one of your closest friends, if not the closest friend on the planet for you. Um, and how did, how, how did kind of engaging in this transformative paradox in the writing um, help you encounter some hope in the midst of your grief and your, your sadness? Yeah, that's a great question. 
Uh, you know, in the book, I write about some experiences in the wake of Alex's death that moved me toward healing. Um, things that made it a little less theoretical for me to believe in resurrection. And um, so experiencing those things was really good for me. But then, you know, to write about them was a form of savoring them and sitting with them and letting them go deeper. And I think um, I would have said before I wrote that chapter that I believe Alex is held and healed in the love of God. Mm. But writing that chapter carried that belief more deeply into me. And I feel less like I'm grasping for that hope these days and more like I'm living in it. And uh, it doesn't mean there isn't enormous sadness still, um, but that sadness is, is, I find that sadness is also carried alongside uh, a really deep peacefulness. Yeah. Um, and, you know, in, in particular in the wake of suicide loss, um, to find some peace is a, a gift I know a lot of us are looking for. And so for me, I'm really grateful that the writing al along with the living um, has, you know, kind of one step at a time um, brought some of that for me. Yeah, no, that's, that's, that's so rich. And I kind of want to go back to our, our first question with that. And I, 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 so again, just appreciate your just willingness to even engage with that. You know, if you go back four years ago, you mm -hmm. know, South Bend city church is, you know, it's a couple years old. Yeah, that's right. Two years, this, old. Yeah. two years old at that time. You go through this difficulty, you, you've got, you know, this kind of, sticky note on, you know, um, when the world breaks above your, your writing, you know that there's something about the Beatitudes, but you still are building and preaching and leading a church. Yeah. Um, and it's like, like your world is breaking. Yeah, yeah. And talk about just, because I think for so many people, as you, you said, like when grief is all around us and, and so many pastors are having to, Sunday's coming, yeah. Saturday night's coming, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, how did you get up and anchor yourself enough, mm. show up present enough, um, and continue to, to pastor when it was breaking? That's a good question. Um, the first answer is for a little while I didn't, yeah. I mean, I had to tap out for a minute. Um, yeah, I had, I had to tap out for a minute yeah. and I think I wish, and, and, and I had the luxury of a team that was built up a little bit at that point. We, we, um, collectively, we kind of had what we needed to, to do that for a minute. I know, I know not every pastor is living there right now. Um, although I think a lot of us are living there more than we realize and we just need to ask for it. Yeah. And I think more of us are empowered to build to a point where we are than we think about maybe, but it takes a lot of work to live beyond week to week, I know. But anyway, first answer is I, I didn't for a little while. And then second answer is um, without, like I said, without trying to use the pulpit to work out your, your crap, um, I do think like, whether it's personal hardship or church hardship, you either see those things as a distraction from the project or you, you realize they're part of the point of the project, right? That like, if this isn't the the raw material of our work, then what is, you know? So that doesn't mean I want to 
you know, use my congregation for therapy every week. That's not right. But I do want to, I do want to say like, well, what are we doing? If not, like if our project isn't integrated with an experience like this, well then let's reevaluate the project. Right. Cause right. Like, what's the point, you know? So yeah. I feel that about everything from losing Alex to the days when budgets are hard at church. <laughs> I'm like, you yeah. know what? Every family goes through seasons when budgets are hard and those are real faith testing seasons. And so I think on the hard days, if I, if I can try to think, okay, hey, now this is, this is now being folded into the, the experiment of a church, right? Rather than this kind of like petty distraction from it. I think that changes your, your approach. Man. I love that. I think that's so it's it, yeah, it's, it's such a more beautiful, accessible way. Um, mm -hmm. And again, it, like to your point is th this is, when you experience, you know, your, your kind of language of walking through the Beatitudes and feeling and this encountering this Jesus who is there with you, who is just like, it's just um, not just facts about him, but actually yeah, yeah, yeah. experiencing. And, and I think, man, um, never do I want anybody to go through anything difficult, mm -hmm. but to go through that and realize, you know, the, those simple truths have just gone through struggle and they now they become profoundly yes, yeah. sacred and holy. And that's, I feel like what comes out in your writing is yeah. a very lived experience and encounter um, with pa a passage of scripture that I've always known that there's more, but I mm. couldn't access it. Mm. And I'm grateful for a guide like you. Um, I feel like just selfishly, I feel like this book was made. Um, and I don't, I don't think this is why you wrote it. I'm just saying, like, I think it was like tailor made for a sermon series or a small group campaign. And, and I, again, like I'm always, always looking for that kind of stuff. Yeah, um, yeah. Have you, have you thought about doing any, anything with maybe you teach it on the weekend and then like, could this be like accessible in a small group or life group or D group, whatever a church calls it? Like, have you thought about any of that? Yeah. Well, so I have this really wise friend named Steve who, uh, who pointed out that uh, there could be a really great chance to like make it more useful with some of that stuff. So yeah, so we've got a discussion guide, like just some simple questions for every chapter and they, they're meant to kind of work, whether it's a book group or a church small group. Um, we've got like little videos from me that, just add a little bit of more personal texture uh, for each chapter. Um, and ultimately I'm like, yeah, if, if this is, you know, one contribution to these words from Jesus getting flushed out for a church, I mean, let's go for it, man. It's, you know, I, I, the way I work it out, there's eight of them plus a couple of extra chapters, but you could do eight weeks on this stuff. And uh, I think um, like when I was writing the discussion guide, I was actually like, man, I would, kill to be a, a fly on the wall of every group who's processing these questions just because i think that there's so much in these blessings that it's going to draw out like real life yeah um so yeah so that's the, all that stuff's out well it, we've got it now right it's part of the pre-order campaign right now but yeah it'll be available and that's a, a way that people can um take more advantage of it i know that you know it's it's, it's kind of amazing like when i find out the different um pastors who are like tuning into the podcast. It always like, it's um, surprises me. It means more than I know, like to, to like, Oh my goodness. Like, that's amazing. And, and knowing that there's a whole bunch of even like uh, college um, 
like kind of chaplains or, oh, yeah. you know, and I'm yeah. like, man, like I just, there was even a part of that, even as you were talking about that, I was like thinking of a couple that I know who you know, are, are leading in amazing college ministries, um, whether at their church right next to the college campus or actually on the college campus. And I was like, man, this, this is like one of those books that I feel like is going to do so well in, you know, so many spheres. But I was like, I wish someone, when I was like, 20 handed me this book too. Oh, wow. Yeah. Just because I'm like, um, I just think it, it would, it would have shown me what the kingdom is all about in a, in a newer way than just, um, it, it just, just a class that I took on the life of Christ, you know, it yeah, just, yeah, it, yeah. It experienced yeah. it. So I just like, I think like, uh, just that just popped in my brain, just as you were talking, I was like, I know that there's um, a couple dozen college pastors and chaplains that listen to this. And I'm like, dude, get this book, read it for yourself. If you, if you need the money to get it, send me an email and I will, I will buy it for you. Cause I just think it's, oh, it's that, that good of a book. Um, Jason, where can people find you? Yeah. So I, I kind of live in two places uh, on social. It's Instagram. I try to show up there well, but it's the only place in social I show up. Yeah. And then, uh, and then Jason Adam and they can find some book stuff there um, and, uh, some other kind of teaching resources I've got up there as well. But, uh, Instagram is really the one place where I, I try to be really present and interactive. So like, I, I love to, that's like wide open there. If anybody wants to like meet me on Instagram, would love to make that connection. So, um, you typically will do, you know, these, uh, Q and a with a pastor oh, yeah. Yeah, that yeah. you did for a while. And I, yeah. I just loved it. I would like every once in a while, just like tune in, you know, and it's just so fun to see like the, the, again, the, the way that you, um, and just for a communicator, you should follow Jason, just for the sake of when you watch him hear a question and and watch him like think through not just what do I want, not just like I'm going to give you an answer, but how can I shape a response that can actually answer not just that question, but the question behind that question and the right. question behind that question. He He does this like, on a myriad of issues like geopolitical, uh, pastoral, church leadership, the text, the difficult issues. I've just seen him do this. And and South Bend City Church, uh, you should listen to him. He's got an amazing team, just like, but the teachings there, you'll you'll just see it. And it's uh it's you can you can feel the pastor, the the thought leader. But also the artist, uh, the and and yet he doesn't he does he's not like the kind of artist where you're like oh that was clever but not clear. Um, it's the it's the artist that is like profoundly clear, and just the cleverness and the beauty is just sprinkled all around it. Um, so please please give him a follow, give him a listen. Um, Jason, any any like sometimes I do this, but I I was thinking like if if you could like give your own kind of like blessing um, out of, out of like the beatitudes, like, yeah. or out of just um, over these number of pastors that week after week are yeah. just writing week after week are just preaching week after week, sitting with their people week after week, trying to, trying to yeah. walk when the world just breaks all around them yeah. and trying to be steadfast and faithful and hope filled. Um, could you just give them a, a little benediction? I'd love to. Can I actually read the last page and a half of my book? 
Okay, I was hoping that you were gonna say that. I and I yeah, again you. I never I never <laughs> give any of my questions to uh yeah. my guests because I always want it to feel real time, but I was really, really hopeful that you were gonna do that because <laughs> that's that so you, man. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> um I'll, brief background. This is me just working out how to how to do the blessing work that the Beatitudes do. And this is the way I hear them in my own life right now. And um I'd I'd be really honored to Uh, to give this to everybody listening. Here we go. When the world breaks and you find that you've been robbed in spirit, when you look to that place within where you would hope to find hope and joy and power and peace and instead find a poverty, may you know that you are in the terrain of heaven because the soul is not a closed system. We are conduits of God And the open-heartedness that allowed you to be robbed as you suffered is the very disposition that will allow you to be filled with the divine. When the world breaks and you suffer great loss, whether it's the loss of hope or the loss of a dream or the loss of a beautiful arrangement or the actual loss of someone you loved, may you mourn bravely and in naming the void where the gift once stood, may you discover the eyes of your soul dilated your inner being flooded with light for nothing good can ever be lost in God. And the glory we yearn for is still with us. When the world breaks and you find your strength bridled either by circumstance or systems, when you find yourself unable to take for yourself the things you need, may you trust that an open hand is all that's needed to receive for you will inherit everything as nothing real was ever the possession of those who have bridled you in the first place. When the world breaks and you find yourself aching for things to be made right, either within you or around you, whether the fractures have happened in your life or have come against your life, may you trust the sacred pangs of hunger. May you know how holy your parched palate is. And rather than allowing your thirst to be slaked by false promises and faux justice, May your ache become a compass that leads you to a feast of peace. And if you've been wronged and are finally given the rightful power of the victim to exact revenge, may you remember that you were forged from the same moral fabric as the one who violated you. And without creating a false equivalence between victims and those who have perpetrated their suffering, may we remember our own need for mercy. If you find your heart darkened by cynicism, May you see past the illusion that corruption is the final word. May your own shadows be the proving ground for a more perceptive vision. And may the eyes of your heart be enlightened, giving you an uncommon capacity to see God, to see light in even the darkest corners of the world. If you find yourself called out into the borderlands, into the no man's land beyond your own faction, forsaking group belonging, and if in those borderlands you find yourself desperately alone, feared by your enemies, and called a traitor by your own. May you discover that you have become a child of God, claimed by the divine. May you discover a cosmic and irrevocable sense of belonging as you walk the lonely path of peace. If you find yourself persecuted, made a target by the powers of disorder that are breaking the world, May you know that you have become a threat to the disorder. You have become a conduit of the divine. You have become an agent of love. So when the world breaks and it tries to break us, may we trust that we too will be raised up. Peace to you.
Jason Miller, thank you. That was, I just, I remember when I was reading it and I was like, that, that's how you close a book. That's how you close a book. And thank you. And uh, friends, this book drops in early August. What's the actual date? August 1st. August 1st, early August. And so, uh, man, I'm so excited for you all to to dive into this podcast, go pre-order it. Pre-orders actually really, really help an author. Um, so if you if you can do that, um, and so you'll have it right on August 1st uh, to, to dive in and read. Um, everyone, thanks so much for tuning in to the Crafting Character Podcast. Uh, your support means the world. I'm so grateful for my friends at Food for the Hungry and Preaching Today who just believe in each of you, the soul of the preacher, um, not just your craft getting better, but hopefully um, your character always leading the way. And with that, my friends, um, may we embody the Beatitudes even when the world breaks. Much love, grace, and peace. Well, thanks so much for tuning in to the Crafting Character Podcast. Hey, do me a favor. Go and pre-order When the World Breaks. I'm telling you, it is so good. So good. Go to Amazon, go to Barnes & Noble, wherever wherever you buy books, local bookshop, go get it. Just, it's it's going to be one of those reads. Um, and, and really think about maybe this could be an incredible fall series. I mean, walking through the Beatitudes, come on. I'm just saying this is, this is what our world needs more than ever. Um, but I have to say, I couldn't do this podcast without my friends at Preaching Today, the work that they're doing, man. I, again, I just go to the website quite regularly. It's usually two, three times a week. Sometimes I just need a little sense of inspiration. Um, they love craft and character. They love this crew of, of those who download, listen, share. I mean, they're big fans of us and what we're building here. And man, if you, if you would ever need uh, help, man, check them out, get a membership. It's, it's really, really amazing. And then, um, I'm excited because I'm headed to the Dominican Republic again, with food for the hungry. And this will be my second time this year. Um, uh, but it's, it's something that I'm just, uh, it has just moved my heart, uh, to see different villages and communities and the renewal that they're doing. Uh, if you'd ever want to learn more about that, man, please hit me up, Steve at steveryancarter.com, um, or go check out what the good work that food for the hungry is doing at fh.org. But with that, my friends, may you embody a little bit more of that surprising hope and the subversive promises that Jesus offers us. Much love, everyone. Grace and peace. This episode is brought to you in part by the Beyond Ordinary Women Ministries podcast. Do you want to grow in your influence? Bow's episodes feature tips for leaders of any kind. From mentoring one woman to leading a ministry, browse Bow's podcast at beyondordinarywomen.org.